G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. We are drawing ever dangerously nearer to the thrilling conclusion of season three. Yes, that's right, thrilling of the podcast. And that means today we're going to be talking about the exile. Wait, didn't I say that last time? Yeah, you did, with ferocious ferocity. Indeed. So, uh, what, we're talking about the exile again? That seems uh, redundant. Oh, not really. There's a lot more to be said. Okay, well, I hope it's not just going to be another uh, 50 minutes of you reading uh, curses out of the Bible. I needed a hug and a nap after that. Some of those curses were pretty gross. Oh, they weren't that bad, were they? They were bad. Uh, Very, very bad. Uh, What about all that stuff about people having babies and then eating them? Huh? Oh, that. Yeah, that could be easily misunderstood. I mean, they probably cooked them between giving birth and having dinner. It kind of sounded like it was happening right away, didn't it? It did. Yeah, it it did indeed. Um, Why would God curse people and make them do something like that? Ah, right, okay. So I guess the first thing to understand is that this describes the horrible realities of war in the ancient Near East. It's not like people wanted to eat children or they were doing some kind of human sacrifice thing. You see, in the ancient world, the bulk of the population lived out in agricultural lands, governed and protected by walled cities in between. If foreign invaders came, you'd leave your farm and go into the city, protected by high walls and fortifications and guarded by soldiers. If the invaders couldn't get in, you were safe. The army would go out and fight them off, and then it's business as usual. Okay, okay, but I'm still waiting for the bit where babies uh, comes into this. Uh, about that. Sometimes the invading army had the resources to overwhelm the defenders, and that meant your only hope was to wait out the siege. But while you were safe inside, the enemy was outside the walls, building ramps to get them over the top. In the meantime, you prayed for help and tried to feed your family. Sieges often went for months, even years especially when the cities were built in high places like mountaintops. But the invaders knew that eventually you'd run out of food. And in the really bad situations, they didn't even let you out for food. They locked you in and waited until you either got sick or starved, and when you ran out of food, well, you got to eat something. That is uh, wrong on so many levels, but I guess it was a very different world to ours today. Um, now we just, you know, push buttons and send bombs to the other side of the world. There's no sense of uh, engagement with the... Uh, the human cost of our actions. Yeah, that's true. All right, so I get the whole uh, eating babies thing, uh, but why would God curse people with something so nasty? Why would why would you make that somebody's destiny? Because this stuff really happened, right, after it was uh, predestined by God in Scripture. Yeah, okay, so let's talk about that. It was written in Scripture, and it was told by God through his prophets, but does that mean that God wrote the destiny of the people beforehand? I'm going to say no. I think that when we see the prophets as God's messengers of warning rather than the harbingers of doom, we have to acknowledge that the people had a choice as to whether they responded appropriately to God's warning or not. Don't forget, all those curses started with a big if. So it was, if you do this, then this will happen, and if you do that, then that will happen. Think about the story of Jonah. He went to Nineveh and preached repentance, and the people did repent, even though Jonah had told them that there was judgment from God coming, and... So the people avoided disaster. So none of that bad stuff had to happen? Well, I don't think that it was necessitated by the prophecy itself. There may have been other factors at work that influenced whether this thing was going to happen or not. Ultimately, it did happen. But that's not the same as predestination. 
you can see that there were human factors that led down the path that eventually resulted in exile. But what about Adam and Eve? They didn't get a warning before they were uh, kicked out of Eden. Well, we don't have a warning recorded in the text, but then this is not a prophecy about future events. It's just a story. And the point of the story is that from this point of view, exile was inevitable. Because we're dealing with a nation that's already in exile, not just a man who could have been. The pertinent facts are, number one, God is holy and dwells in sacred space. Number two, man was invited to share that space and to partake of the tree of life. Number three, man fell short of what it took to maintain holiness in that space through disobedience, mistrust and disloyalty. Number four, the solution is exile in the hope that obedience, faithfulness and loyalty can be learned and proximity to God restored, resulting in renewed access to the tree of life. The story is being told to people who are already in exile, so there's not really a need to fill in the details. Instead, we need to be looking at the larger picture. What do you mean when you say that? The man has been sent out from sacred space in order that he should serve the ground, which is to take ownership and responsibility for the people outside of the garden and to care for their needs. And it is in this way that he will find his own needs met. We talked about this last week in the words of Jeremiah the prophet who encouraged the exiles to build houses and live in them, to plant crops and eat from them, to find wives and marry them, and to raise families in order to bless Babylon with prosperity because it was in blessing the nations that the Jews would be blessed. We've been talking for a long time on this podcast about the inherently selfish nature of humankind, and here God presents the remedy. Don't worry about looking for things to meet your needs. When you bless other people, you yourself will be blessed. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't work to make a living. It means that your motivation for what you do and the reason why you look after and provide for yourself is so that you can bless others. We have to find a way to balance the words of Jesus, who says, don't worry about what you'll wear and what you'll eat, with the words of Paul, who says, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. But most importantly, we need to remember that we're called to love, not just ourselves, not just our neighbour, but our enemy too. Yeah, that's true. But I'm always surprised when uh, we read scripture, just how much you know comes out of it. I wonder how many people read Genesis 3.23 and see what we see, what we're talking about right now, to look at the exile from Eden as God putting us out into the world, serving others and being blessed as a result. Yeah, it's not a common thing that comes out of this in the evangelical world, but you can see how consistent it is with not just the Bible's big story, the meta-narrative, but also with its teaching. And this is why I've said from our very first episode of the podcast that the primeval history, Genesis 1 to 11, functions as a prequel to the big story. Everything is packed in there, everything is set up like a seed waiting to be watered and to grow out. All the elements, the themes, the plot points and the teachings, they all start here in these first chapters of the Bible. And that includes the element of liminal spaces and in-between places and not being in the place where we belong. We are strangers in a strange land and this world is not our home. This is why Jesus tells us to store up treasure in heaven. And yet at the same time, Jeremiah reminds us to live in the world where we are and not to put our lives on hold waiting for the day when we get to go home. This is the tension in which we hold our lives. And we're going to see this element of exile and wandering and being a sojourner in a land that is not our own again and again in the biblical story once it begins with Abraham. That's not just circumstance, that is the instruction of God to his people. And it's not just Abraham either, it's Moses too. Moses names his son Gershom. That name sounds like the phrase, a stranger there, in Hebrew. And Moses uses it because he says, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And... That's not just Moses, but the whole nation of Israel lived as strangers in Egypt and were segregated from the community of the Egyptians, and they became a distinct, or if you like a King James version, a peculiar people. 
At Sinai, the people were called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, representing God to the world. Once again, this is the life and work of the biblical Adam. And like Adam, they were sent out to do this work. And they continued to be strangers, wandering in a strange land in the wilderness. When they arrived at the promised land, the people rejected the land because they had not yet learned to trust the Lord. So their journey continued 40 years. And eventually, as we've been talking about lately, a faithful generation rose up and took the land. Like Abraham before them, they were able to take the land because they were not afraid to confront the giants. They trusted God and reaped the benefits. But where Israel went wrong was in believing that the land had become their own. The promised land always belonged to Yahweh, and his chosen people were to dwell in it as sojourners, not as landowners. And it was when the people began to treat the land as if they had every right to do what they wanted with it, that was when they began down the path that led to exile. Remember that we're reading a big unified story here. Genesis 1 might not be directly connected to the Garden of Eden narrative as if it was originally written on the same page, but all of this weaves together to tell a single story and it begins with the establishment of the working week. We talked about this in season 1 at the conclusion of the season when we were talking about how God provided the model for the working week with six days of labour and a day of rest to be continued as a lasting observance. Look at the Ten Commandments. The first half of that list is centred around loyalty to God and respect for his authorised representations, that's us. And right after that, the next commandment is to keep the Sabbath. Sabbath observance is considered so important that the first chapter of the entire Bible is devoted to making a point about it. And do you remember from our readings last week that the Sabbath was mentioned a number of times in relation to the land? Last time, when we read from Leviticus 26, we were reading the curses, but this time I want to show you the blessings. Leviticus 26 verse 1 Do not make idols for yourselves. Set up a carved image or sacred pillar for yourselves, or place a sculpted stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my Sabbaths and revere my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you follow my statutes and faithfully observe my commands, I will give you rain at the right time, and the land will yield its produce, and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest, and the grape harvest will continue until sowing time. You will have plenty of food to eat and live securely in your land. I will give peace to the land, and you will lie down with nothing to frighten you. I will remove dangerous animals from the land, and no sword will pass through your land. You will pursue your enemies, and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will pursue a hundred, and a hundred of you will pursue ten thousand. Your enemies will fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you, make you fruitful and multiply you, and confirm my covenant with you. You will eat the old grain of the previous year, and will clear out the old to make room for the new. I will place my residence among you, and I will not reject you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, so that you would no longer be their slaves. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to live in freedom. Okay, so those were the blessings that could be expected as a result of honouring God, only being loyal to him, and observing the Sabbath. And I'm not going to read the curses again, but as a reminder, here's a few verses that we read last time in the same chapter, from verses 33 to 35. But I will scatter you among the nations, and I will draw a sword to chase after you, so your land will become desolate, and your cities will become ruins. Then the land will make up for its Sabbath years during the time it lies desolate, while you were in the land of your enemies. At that time, the land will rest and make up for its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it will have the rest it did not have during your Sabbaths when you lived there. And just to make it a little clearer, here's another verse from the same chapter. This is verse 43. 
but the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them, and they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. What's all this stuff about the land having Sabbaths? I thought the Sabbath was for people. How does the ground have a day off? That's a good question. So it turns out that there is a Sabbath for the land, and you can read about it in Leviticus chapter 25. From verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. Speak to the Israelites and tell them, When you enter the land I am giving you, the land will observe a Sabbath to the Lord. You may sow your field for six years, and you may prune your vineyard and gather its produce for six years. But there will be a Sabbath of complete rest for the land in the seventh year, a Sabbath to the Lord. You are not to sow your field or prune your vineyard. You are not to reap what grows by itself from your crop or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. It is to be a year of complete rest for the land. Whatever the land produces during the Sabbath year can be food for you, for yourself, your male or female slave, and the hired worker or alien who resides with you. All of its growth may serve as food for your livestock and the wild animals in your land. You are to count seven sabbatical years, seven times seven years, so that the time period of the seven sabbatical years amounts to forty-nine. Then you are to sound a trumpet loudly in the seventh month on the tenth day of the month, you will sound it throughout your land on the Day of Atonement. You are to consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim freedom in the land for all its inhabitants. It will be your jubilee when each of you is to return to his property and each of you to his clan. The fiftieth year will be your jubilee. You are not to sow, reap what grows by itself, or harvest its untended vines. It is to be holy to you because it is the jubilee. You may only eat its produce directly from the field. In this year of Jubilee, each of you will return to his property. If you make a sale to your neighbour or a purchase from him, do not cheat one another. You are to make the purchase from your neighbour based on the number of years since the last Jubilee. He is to sell to you based on the number of remaining harvest years. You are to increase its price in proportion to a greater amount of years and decrease its price in proportion to a lesser amount of years because what he is selling to you is a number of harvests. You are not to cheat one another, but fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. You are to keep my statutes and ordinances and carefully observe them, so that you may live securely in the land. Then the land will yield its fruit, so that you can eat, be satisfied, and live securely in the land. If you wonder, what will we eat in the seventh year if we don't sow or gather our produce? I will appoint my blessing for you in the sixth year, so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating from the previous harvest. You will be eating this until the ninth year, when its harvest comes in. The land is not to be permanently sold, because it is mine, and you are only aliens and temporary residents on my land. Hmm. So the land belongs to God, and God's people don't have any permanent claim over it, but I thought he gave them the land as an inheritance. Yeah, he did, but inheritance is ancestral in the ancient world. It doesn't belong to you, because you're going to leave it to your kids, and they won't own it either. They don't have ownership like modern Western people claim to do. As we read in verse 23, the people are only aliens and temporary residents on God's land. That sounds like something I was saying earlier, doesn't it? Okay, so God labors for six days and then he rests. God dwells in sacred space. The land also works for six days and then it too must rest because the land itself reflects something of who God is. God's people, as his representatives and the image bearers, also work for six days and then rest. And of course, we know that human beings were intended to be the sacred space in which God would dwell. 
So we can see the connections there. God's people become defiled through idolatry and disloyalty and disobedience. God's land, which is his sacred space, becomes defiled when other gods are introduced to the land and when the land does not get its Sabbath rest through the disobedience of the people. An interesting feature of the Garden of Eden narrative is that it immediately follows the introduction of the Sabbath and no further days are mentioned, which has the effect that the narrative setting of the Eden story begins with the Sabbath. That's not to say that everything in the Eden story occurred on that same day, but the implication of the author is that we should be reading the story in light of the significance of the Sabbath. Oh wow, you know, that's something you don't hear very often. So the effect of preceding the Eden narrative with the Sabbath day is to cast the disobedience of Adam and Eve, and thus the fall of humankind, in light of profaning the Sabbath. And that presents the exile from Eden as the restoration of sacred space by expelling the violators. Basically, you can't be in the place where God is if you will not reflect who God is, or allow the place where God is to reflect who he is. And what happens when you break that rule? In 2 Chronicles 36 verse 20, it says, He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. For some 490 years after the time of King David, the people of Israel neglected God's law concerning the Sabbath years and the rest of the land. That extended period of unfaithfulness in combination with the idolatry of Israel's kings led to the necessity of the exile. The exilic period of 70 years was then followed by another 490-year period, which led to the advent of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And I can't help but think that it's interesting that the prophet Daniel talked about 70 weeks of years to come in his future, and we're still waiting for the 70th week to occur even though Messiah has come. But when we look backward from the beginning of the exile, the 70 Sabbaths was not where the problems really started for Israel. Just as the 70 weeks were supposed to bring an end to iniquity, and we haven't seen that end yet. I think the 70 Sabbaths reflect the time from the introduction of iniquity, and that takes us back to Eden. We're not talking about the calendar anymore. This is from the first transgression to the climax of iniquity interrupted by the exile, followed by the restoration, which is yet to do away with sin because we're waiting for the day of the Lord. These are not dates for your diary. This is the beginning and the end of the human experience as we know it. That's amazing. And uh, honestly, I've never heard it put like that before. So you're saying that the author is telling us in Genesis 3 that the fall of man is actually representative of the fall of Israel. And the problem Israel faces is one of sin, not just at the corporate level, but as humans at the individual level as well. And that's a problem as old as time, uh, which won't be resolved until the end of time when Jesus comes again. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. And it's not until after this text is presented in the form that we have it now that Jewish authors begin to talk about human sin as having any part to play in the state of things in the world as we know it concerning the human condition and the reason why things are wrong in the world. But they also had a fair idea of the remedy. This is Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair 
and they will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify him. They will rebuild the ancient ruins, they will restore the former devastations, they will renew the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers will stand and feed your flocks, and foreigners will be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you will be called the Lord's priests. They will speak of you as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of the nations, and you will boast in their riches. In place of your shame, you will have a double portion. In place of disgrace, they will rejoice over their share. So they will possess double in their land, and eternal joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and injustice. I will faithfully reward my people and make a permanent covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their posterity among the peoples. All who see them will recognize that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I rejoice greatly in the Lord. I exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and wrapped me in a robe of righteousness, as a groom wears a turban and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth produces its growth, and as a garden enables what is sown to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. And that's a passage quoted by Jesus, right? Uh, yep. So Isaiah tells his audience that when Messiah comes, he will bring the jubilee that restores all things. And knowing that, Jesus began his public ministry by selectively quoting from that same passage. This is Luke 4 verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now the 70 years of the exile may be over, but as far as the Jewish people are concerned, the exile has not ended and cannot end until Messiah comes. They're thinking about Daniel chapter 9 and the way that Daniel interprets Jeremiah, although Daniel's reading of Jeremiah's prophecy actually foretold with accuracy the number of years until the advent of Christ and should have been taken as authoritative, legitimizing the claims of Christ. As Isaiah said, we're waiting for the day of the Lord's vengeance, and since that hasn't happened, the Jews are still waiting. But we can't ignore the words of Jesus, who announced the beginning of his ministry with a declaration that the Jubilee, the restoration of all things, was fulfilled in the presence of those who heard him speak that day. Jesus is saying that the restoration begins with him, not with the temple. But he neatly skips over the vengeance bit. The day of the Lord is yet to come. So hang on a minute. Why is Jesus talking about Jubilee? Ah, uh, yeah. Well, firstly, that's because Jesus understands that in the tradition of his day, the Jubilee cycle centered around seven lots of seven years, or 49 by 10, which gives 490 years. And he knows that it was 490 years since Cyrus decreed the rebuilding of the temple. Secondly, Jesus is aware of certain traditions that connected the Jubilee cycle with the coming of Messiah and the restoration of all things. Specifically, he's also aware that the Day of Atonement falls within certain Jubilee cycles, and that the time of the commencement of his ministry coincides with one of these special years. That means that Jesus has to be talking about the release of prisoners from bondage, the cancellation of debts, 
the return of exiles to their ancestral land, and the forgiveness of sins. But only God can forgive sins. And that means that when Jesus proclaims the fulfilment of this passage in Isaiah 61, he is claiming to be God. And he can do that because there is precedent in Second Temple period tradition creating the expectation that this would happen. And that's necessary because Israel has become subject to foreign powers, which means that other gods have had dominion over God's people, Israel, so they're going to have to be overcome in order to liberate the people and bring them back. Only God himself is going to be able to do that. Here's an excerpt from the Dead Sea Scrolls, specifically 11Q Melchizedek and Column 2. I'm going to interject here and there to explain some of the stuff that's going on here, and there are some gaps in the text, which I'll bring to your attention as we go as well. The gaps, known in academic circles as lacunae, can make it difficult in places, but they kind of add to the fun of reading ancient manuscripts. So here we go, this is 11Q Melchizedek, Column 2. And as for what he said, quoting Leviticus 25, verse 13 here, In this year of Jubilee you shall return each one to his respective property. Concerning it, he said, and now quoting Deuteronomy 15, verse 2, This is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he lent to his neighbour. He shall not coerce his neighbour or his brother, for it has been proclaimed a release for God. It's interpretation. So the scribe's about to launch into an interpretation here. This is what they call a Pesha text, which means you get a bit of scripture and then you get an interpretation, or Peshro in Hebrew, uh, provided by the scribe. So now he's going to tell us how to interpret the scripture that he just quoted. For the last days refers to the captives, and he's talking here about the exiles who haven't yet returned, who, lacuna, I'm going to say lacuna every time there's a hole in the text, um, and whose teachers have been hidden and kept secret, and from the inheritance of Melchizedek for lacuna. And they are the inheritance of Melchizedek who will make them return. So here we have an example of Second Temple Period interpretation of Melchizedek as some kind of embodiment of God himself. That's a pretty complex one that I haven't got time to go into here. Um, as we'll find as we get into the book of Hebrews that Melchizedek is connected with Christ. So there's some really significant theology going on in the Second Temple Period as people try to find ways to bring significant Old Testament characters into alignment with the person of God as a potential future Messiah. So we're not saying that Melchizedek is God. But there are some really important connections made in some Jewish traditions that help point the way to Christ. By the way, if you're not familiar with Melchizedek, that comes from Genesis 14. So I want to have a look at that. And liberty will be proclaimed for them to free them from the debt of all their iniquities. And this will happen in the first week of the Jubilee, which follows the nine Jubilees. And the Day of Atonement is the end of the tenth Jubilee in which atonement shall be made for all the sons of light and for all the men of the lot of Melchizedek. So basically the Day of Atonement in the 10th Jubilee is the time when all of God's people get their sins removed from them, as we find in the Day of Atonement ritual, in the goat that is sent away carrying the sins of the people, the goat for Azazel. That comes from Leviticus 16 and 17, I think 17. Remember that according to First Enoch, Azazel is the character judge responsible for the sin of the watchers. So in this text, the children of light are the Jews and the sin they carry is forgiven by being removed from them and transferred to the goat for Azazel. Back to our text. And again, we have uh, lacuna over them. Lacuna. 
according to all their works, for it is the time for the year of grace of Melchizedek and of his armies, the nation of the holy ones of God, of the rule of judgment, as is written about him in the songs of David, who said, and this is from Psalm 82, verse 1, Elohim will stand in the assembly of God in the midst of the gods he judges. And about him, he said, this is from Psalm 7, verses 8 to 9, and above it to the heights return. God will judge the peoples. As for what he said, again, we're back to Psalm 82, verse 2. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Its interpretation concerns Belial and the spirits of his lot who, lacuna, turn aside from the commandments of God to commit evil. Obviously, we've got some clear divine counsel references because the scribe is getting deep into Psalm 82 and the whole worldview presented in Genesis 11, Deuteronomy 32 and elsewhere. Notice here we have the mention of Belial, the leader of the evil spirits, according to this tradition. And as I mentioned before, different traditions will have different names for the chief bad guy. But all of this stuff is derived from Old Testament references. And the point being made by the use of the term Belial is the chaotic nature of this entity and his demonic hordes, which is evident when we consider the nature of chaos in the ancient world and its connection with the idea of being worthless or useless, which is how you generally find the word translated in your English Old Testament. We have something like B'nai Belial, literally sons of Belial in Hebrew. English translations usually have something like worthless fellows. But Melchizedek will carry out the vengeance of God's judgments, and on that day he will free them from the hand of Belial and from the hand of the spirits of his lot. You can see here how Melchizedek is being used as a type of Christ. To his aid shall come all the gods of justice, and he is the one who, lacuna, all the sons of God, and lacuna, this lacuna, is the day of peace about which he said, lacuna, through Isaiah the prophet, who said, and this is quoting Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace, the messenger of good who announces salvation, saying to Zion, your God reigns. Its interpretation, the mountains are the prophets. Lacuna, for all. Lacuna, and the messenger is the anointed of the spirit, as Daniel said about him. This is Daniel 9.25. Until an anointed, a prince, it is seven weeks so here we see that the scribe has adopted the view of the Sabbath years as sevens or weeks of years, which Daniel uses in chapter 9 to look forward from the exile, instead of using Sabbath years individually in retrospect, like the author of Second Chronicles. Remember, we had that passage earlier about the 70 years that the land would have its rest. Uh, getting back to our reading, and the messenger of good who announces salvation is the one about whom it is written that lacuna, to comfort the afflicted, its interpretation to instruct them in all the ages of the world. Lacuna, in truth. Lacuna has turned away from Belial and will return. Lacuna, in the judgments of God, as it is written about him, in Isaiah 52, verse 7, saying to Zion, your God rules. Zion is the congregation of all the sons of justice, those who establish the covenant, those who avoid walking on the path of the peoples. And your God is Lacuna. Melchizedek, who will free them from the hand of Belial. That's some uh, really interesting stuff. Uh, but you wouldn't know about this unless you actually dug out these manuscripts from the Second Temple period and read them to try and understand how people were, were thinking, you know, when they wrote the New Testament. Probably shouldn't sing tequila while you read it, though. And for some reason, I feel like having a drink now. 
So, yeah, all, all this is to show that Messiah, the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek, according to the order of Hebrews, is the guy who is going to take his place in the divine council and judge the gods, according to Psalm 82, and liberate the captives, as per Leviticus 25, verse 13, which we were reading earlier. And this is what was present in the minds of Jesus' listeners in the synagogue that day. But they weren't happy about it when Jesus effectively said, that's me. And they tried to throw Jesus off a cliff. Yeah, and how did that work out for them? Uh, it didn't. But it doesn't matter. Jesus had made his point. The solution to exile, the jubilee that they were waiting for to return everything to the way it was supposed to be. That was Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the new Melchizedek. He's the most high who's going to judge the nations and their gods. And he's going to bring everyone back. He's going to forgive sins. He's going to purify the land and set everything right again. He's going to restore sacred space on the earth and put us back in fellowship with God so that we can be where he is. That's our return to Eden. And we can participate in that victory and be included in God's restored family through our allegiance to Jesus and his intercession for us on our behalf. That's how we get back to Eden. That's how we get back to everlasting life in the presence of God. But before that happens, we're going to finish this Bible study. We've got to get on to next week's reading, the epic conclusion to Genesis 3 and the uh, fascinating stuff we're going to find there. That's right. Stick around. We'll see you next week. Lakuna! <laughs> it's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, by DJ Stephen on Amazon, paperback, and Google Check out the other podcasts at ravencreekscc.com, giantanswers.com, Please follow and have us on socials, don't forget to subscribe to the Friends Club Show. Send us all your questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Just uh, having a quiet uh, whiskey. I uh, just finished my uh, sub of comfort in lemonade. Yeah. I've still got le some lemonade left, so um, obviously I'm obliged to buy some more sub of comfort. Sounds like it. Um, you can't just drink lemonade by itself. That's disgusting. Not the damn thing. <laughs> lemonade is a mixer. <laughs> uh, uh, all right. Uh, you ready, young man? Certainly, old friend. Lacuna. <laughs> oh, you just had to do it, didn't you? Had to do it. <laughs>